that's what the Lord did. So now, Father, you've given us Christmas. You've given us Good Friday. You have given us Easter Sunday morning, which means then that you have protected your plan and preserved your people to fulfill that plan when the ultimate Jew, Jesus, entered into this world to die in our place for our sins. But what we want to see in the midst of this story is how the cosmic battle is unfolding, even in, in a microcosmic form within a throne room between a man and a woman. And just as you raised Esther for the time in which she lived, each and every one of us are positioned in various relationships, going to various schools, experiencing certain things that maybe we ourselves would not have chosen, either for ourselves or family members, for such a time as this. We're not naive. We study your word and we see and we look through the lens of your word, the way in which this world unfolds. We see how all of it moves linearly towards the first and then the second coming of Christ described in the scriptures, past and future. We want to see where we fit in for such a time as this. So we're praying once again that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. So again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. I'm praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. A writer reflecting upon World War II through the experiences of Corey Ten Boom reminds us that Corey trained to be a watchmaker. Remember that word. Corey trained to be a watchmaker herself and in 1922 became the first woman licensed as a watchmaker in Holland. She, along with her family, part of the Dutch Reformed Church, knew Jesus as her Lord and Savior and was inspired through her church to offer food, shelter, money to those in need. In May of 1940, the Nazis invaded the Netherlands. Among their restrictions was the banning of Christian youth centers. In May of 1942, a well-dressed woman came to the Ten Booms with a suitcase in hand, and told them that she was a Jew. Her husband had been arrested several months before. Her son had gone into hiding. And occupation authorities had recently visited her, and she was afraid to go back, you see. She had heard that the Ten Booms were willing to help Jewish neighbors, and asked if they might help her too. Corey's father, Caspar Ten Boom, readily agreed, a student of God's word, believing that God was working through the first and the second comings, utilizing the Jews, and agreed that she should stay with them, even though, even though the police headquarters was only a half a block away. Thus the Ten Booms began what is now known in movies as well as in book form, they began the hiding place. Some of you in this church have gone to visit that house she was in. 
Corey and her sister Betsy opened their home to refugees. Both Jews and others were members of the resistance movement. They had plenty of room, although wartime shortages meant food was scarce. Every non-Jewish Dutch person received a ration card, the requirement for obtaining weekly food coupons. Through charitable work, Ten Boom knew many people in her region and remembered a couple who had a disabled daughter. The Nazis looked down upon the disabled. Now, the father of that home was a civil servant who was by then in charge of the local ration card office. So Corey went to the house, her heart beating fast. How will I feed those that are hiding in my home? He asked her how many ration cards she needed. Quote, I opened my mouth to say five, but the number that unexpectedly and astonishingly came out instead was 100. And he drew out 100 ration cards, handed them to me, which were used in turn. For every Jew I met. God is the great watchmaker. In his providence, he not merely watches us, he watches over us, you see. All things work together for the good, but not everything feels good. And so now, Corey's got to understand this in light of the sovereignty of God, as do we, which is what the book of Esther is really all about. What I want to do is to look very carefully now at the lens, through the lens of the Scriptures, and examine evil through that lens, and ask in turn, how should Christians react, respond, deal, plan, devise strategies in the midst of an evil world. This is not a playground. This is a battleground. We're going to draw three spheres that I see here in these verses that you and I have got to take into account in order to negotiate life well. The first is found in verses 1 through 4, that when confronting evil schemes, which all of us have or are doing at this moment, there is wisdom, number one, in in what? Concealing strategic plans initially. Watch what unfolds. It's the third day. Three days, three nights, the Jewish population throughout the kingdom of Persia has been fasting, seeking God's intervention. It's the third day. Esther's been doing the same. She's probably not looking the best now. And you've got to remember that this king has not seen her for 30 days. This king historically has a harem. She must be wondering, why have I not been requested to come into his presence? What's his attitude toward me? He is very outward, vision-oriented. But nonetheless, inwardly, she's prepared her heart for what God might do in and through her. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. 
She remembers what happened to Vashti, the prior queen who had been vanished. She's about to go in unannounced into the king's presence. Are you there, God? Are you with me, God? And stood in the inner court of the king's palace. God, I'm trusting you that you're there, but why hasn't he called me in sooner? Couldn't I have had some evidences that he's leaning in my direction rather than Haman's direction? Am I entering into ultimate conflict? Will I lose my life? I've said if I perish, I perish, you know. Why hasn't he called me in sooner? I'm going in based upon faith in you. Stood in the inner court, the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne. Opposite the entrance of the palace. Now, there's tremendous courage here at this point. Courage is rooted in conviction, but the convictions have got to be the convictions that come from the primary truths of God's word. And so, in verse 2, in verse 2, when the king saw, see the visual usage of words here? When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. Underneath the surface, and Christians have got to always be asking, but what's underneath the surface? The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Esther would have loved to have at least been asked every two, three days for some evidence of the fact he's still interested in her. He's not leaning towards anti-Semitism. Remember, this is not so much of a marital as it is a royal relationship. There is a sense of formal distance between the king and the queen here. So much is at stake. But when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. Why? Because God is at work within his heart. He's dealing with the visual. God is working with the internal. Look what happens next. He held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Now what we've got to bear in mind, and there is a famous painting of this, Dr. Edwin Yamauchi, in fact, captures it in one of his textbooks on the Bible in Persia, is that if somebody approaches the king and he has not held out the scepter, there is a swordsman ready to put that person to death. The swordsman stands next to the king as his protector. Esther's approaching, and she's approaching not only the scepter, but the sword. You see? Can you feel the tension in the air? This is a woman of courage. Esther approaches. You can almost feel the heart. It's just pounding. Esther approached, touched the tip of the scepter at this point. And the richness of the words that flow from his lips capture our attention. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? 
He has never called her Queen Esther before. For three days, people have been fasting, seeking God, God's intervention. Cosmic conflict of good and evil getting played out in the microcosmic realm of this inner throne room. As the scepter in the king's hand and the sword in the protector's hand. All juxtaposed together for such a time as this. There will come a time later in history where a man named Latimer, who had been chaplain to the king of England, was being summoned in, and he didn't know where he stood with the king, and said to himself, Latimer, Latimer, using old English now, thou art going to speak before the high and the mighty king, Henry VIII. Be careful what thou sayest. But Latimer, Latimer, Remember also, thou art about to speak before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Take heed, thou does not please, displease him. Always be conscious of who you are ultimately standing before. The ultimate authority of this world. Your watchmaker. The one who's on watch. The one who watches over as all of a sudden now, the king speaks, and for the first time she hears him calling out, Queen Esther, can you imagine the sense of relief now that is flooding her soul at this moment? She has been formally acknowledged by him. But then goes on and says, what is your request? And then astoundingly adds, Without having heard the request, it shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. Which, interestingly enough, is the very same form of request that was offered at the time of the beheading of John the Baptist when the queen's daughter wanted John's head. Well, in verse 4, the natural tendency at this point would be for us to say to ourselves, Esther's going to say, Haman has issued a decree against the Jews. I am a Jew. I need your protection, right? Wouldn't that be the natural thing to say? But you see, when you're dealing with courage, you don't always do what comes natural. You're dealing with the whole realm of the supernatural, where God gives you strength in ways you never knew. He does that for you. He does that for your children. He does that for your friends, your loved ones. But notice they first sought God, you see. Seek God. Now, thus far, she has still not revealed her plan, her strategic plan. Is this the moment? Nope. Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today for a feast that I prepared for the king. She doesn't reveal her, her plan. Now, my mind goes back to New York, and I had stopped and turned to the side because we were passing this little park where an elderly man was playing chess with a young girl. And I pull out my notepad, and I just write down chess because I know it's going to come into play somewhere when I speak. 
he is mentoring her in strategic moves. And I'm thinking here of Mordecai and Esther at this point. Now, dads, if you have daughters, tremendous realm here of discipleship in equipping daughters for thinking strategically. Susan Polgar is one of the great chess masters of the world. She and her sisters, brilliant in chess, They've written down what they call some life lessons about chess in making strategic moves. They must have been reading Esther and her strategic moves, such as well, how you start gives direction as to how you will finish. Start wisely. Another. When playing chess, spot your opportunities. Learn to see whether those you are playing against repeat themselves with similar moves. Note the patterns. Make your adjustments. Move ahead. Another? Watch out for Zugzvegs. I know you did that this morning coming here. It's when every move feels like it's a bad move. But don't assume that every move that feels like a bad move is a bad move. It could be a good move. It feels bad right now. Another? Be flexible without becoming predictable. Another? Keep your options open and always know your escape route. Finally, Use your queen strategically to protect your king continuously. And I thought of Esther. Now what fascinates me at this point is that Esther is showing restraint, which is necessary in life. The writer of Proverbs says, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. When I'm listening to committee members, board members, more often than not, I have to do this. It's just my physical way of reminding myself, don't speak, listen. Because the proverb writer in chapter 17, 27, 28 said, he who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is counted prudent, you see. And so now, she is not rash. Her timing is such, for such a time as this, that she matches for such a time with a sense of timing. There's self-discipline here. She does not act impulsively. She does not reveal the plan prematurely. Instead, she just simply opens up a chess move, and you almost sense now she's moved a pawn. Watch out for the bishop. As you get ready now for the second sphere, we're in verses 5 through 8 when conflicting 
confronting evil schemes. Secondly, there is wisdom in obtaining critical promises publicly. Publicly, because thus far, the promise that the king has given to Esther was given privately. Now it's going to be given publicly. Well, she's moving her night. She wants Esther, Esther wants Haman now to be part of, of what's happening here. And so now you've got anti-Semitism on one side of the king, and you've got Semitism on the other side of the king, and the chess pieces are being moved. And the king said in five, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. Leadership involves taking initiative. But initiative needs to be wrapped in strategic planning. Strategic planning needs biblical conviction. Biblical conviction needs to be saturated in seeking God, which they've done three days, three nights. For such a time as this, here's where the timeless and the timely converge. The king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther's asked. He didn't use the story to say, bring Esther quickly to do as Haman has asked. Otherwise, Esther would be in trouble. Haman thinks he's taking initiative. Esther's taking initiative. This is quite a woman. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. You see all this emphasis on preparation? She's not merely preparing food. She's preparing a plan. And in verse 6, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What's your wish shall be granted you? What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom will be, shall be fulfilled. But now the promise has gone public. First time it was expressed and communicated privately. Now the king's on record. Haman hears it. The promise is now being communicated publicly. Is she now going to share the strategy? No. In verse 7, Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish, and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I'll prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king had said. And there's going to be still more at the feast. So at this point then, she has now obtained the promise publicly. And notice thus far, she still has not revealed her intent. Now some might argue that there's a lack of authenticity here. And I would say, no, that's naivety. That just is a matter of superficiality when you think that way. Use an illustration. Target left bunch. Philly special. I read that. The strategy of the Philadelphia Eagles. And I smiled when I thought about the play that unfolded during the Super Bowl. 
as I'm saying to myself, Nick Foles is not lined up right behind the center. He's off center. What's going on here? Now, Nick Foles' coach is born again, Coach Peterson. Coach Peterson does not text Coach Bilicek of the Patriots and say, I'm about to do this play in the name of authenticity. Furthermore, the offensive coordinator is the former president of Reformed Theological Seminary, Frank Reich. The quarterback hopes to become a pastor someday and is born again. Could it be for such a time as this so that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and onward, all these various eagles, and there's a lot of them, are going to be able to share the good news that Jesus died for their sins? And they've done it, and they continue to do it. Could it be that the eagles won for such a time as this to reach the hearts of people that otherwise couldn't be reached because for them, they think in terms of the sports world? Fascinating. God goes about positioning people, and sometimes the Nick Foles of this world look out of position. But God's ways are not our ways, are they? And so God will sometimes position you in certain jobs or in certain neighborhoods or in certain schools or in certain circumstances, and you say to yourself, I just feel so out of position. But that might be part of the sovereign plan. So brilliantly now, Queen Esther is not only secured a promise privately, but now she, in essence, seems to be testing once again this king, because now with Haman present, will he repeat that promise? Because now the king is about to deliver the same promise, but he will do so publicly. This is how you build a life of wisdom in an evil world. How you build this into your life, into your friends' lives, into a church's life experience, into children and grandchildren, and on and on. Spouses. There is wisdom then, second of all, when you are facing evil of obtaining critical promises publicly. But now we're ready for a third sphere. And we're looking carefully now at verse 9, down to verse 14. And that thirdly, when confronting evil schemes, there's wisdom in enduring oppositional displays patiently. He said, God, what do you mean? Just as believers during World War II had to endure the Nazi symbols and swastikas and works. Now the Jews in Susa and throughout the Persian realm going to have to ponder how, how something is being constructed to begin to destroy the Jewish population. It's going to be very visual, very oppositional, very public. Watch what happens. In verse 9, Haman went out that day joyful. He's excited, glad of heart. But now notice... Notice the psychology of his soul. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, 
that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Haman's got so much, but he is so focused upon one thing, shades of the Garden of Eden, given so much, but focused upon just one thing. What's forbidden in that case? Watch out for disproportionate rage, disproportionate wrath, where a one-on-one conflict gets blown out of proportion, as this will. In verse 10, nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. He thinks, you see, he thinks he's got everything under control. What he doesn't understand is how out of control his so-called in-control is. And I thought about that when I was reading once again about D-Day, where June 6, 1944, the Nazis were basically asleep. No one was expecting an attack in bad weather such as what they were facing. Rommel wasn't the only officer, the historian writes, on vacation. Most of the German leaders had taken the weekend off. What happened next? The Allied landing had been planned. I underlined that. Planned with precision. Everyone had a place. I underlined that. And time in the drama. Everything went more or less on schedule. But then I noticed something here. The historian also tells us that General Eisenhower's right-hand man, James Stagg, who was responsible for keeping Eisenhower informed of weather reports, indicated that there would be a 16-hour window in the bad weather. Eisenhower entered Europe through that window. It's become known in history as the window of promise. Now, what Esther has done has been given the window of promise. The king has promised the fulfillment of her request privately. Now the king has promised the fulfillment of her request publicly. She now sees the window of opportunity while her Rommel, Haman, is asleep as to what's happening here. She keeps working the plan. And God continues to work out this plan in that throne room because everything's at stake. We need a Christmas. We need a Good Friday. We need an Easter Sunday morning. And this woman has now moved another pawn. In verse 11, Haman recounted to them, speaking of his friends and his wife, he's pulled them all together to celebrate, you see, all of his achievements. You're going to begin to see pride at work here. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, as if his wife didn't know. All the promotions with which the king had honored him, how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Kind of a captive audience here, you know. But then... But then Haman said, 
Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see, underline this, Mordecai the Jew. It doesn't say merely Mordecai. Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. You see, Haman is part of a line that has been oppositional toward the Jews ever since the Israelites had departed Egypt. In Exodus 17, their objective was to annihilate the Jewish population. Now here, Haman the Agagite seeks to annihilate the Jewish population. So he starts with the idea of Mordecai, and he says, Mordecai the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. Well now, shades of Ahab and Jezebel, of 1 Kings 21, when you see 14 unfold, then his wife Zerosh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. That's roughly about 70, 75 feet. That's quite a specter. That's a visual statement. Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully to the king, with the king to the feast. What kind of twisted thinking is this? Now all the Jews in Susa have been praying, and all of a sudden they see the scaffold appearing. Where are you, God? What are you doing, God? We've been seeking you, God. We claim the promises given to you by you to us, God. As I read this, I'm reminded of 1991. Things were coming to a head when demonstrators planned a massive march in Moscow on March 28th to show their opposition to governmental policy, hoping that 500,000 people would participate. The Kremlin banded demonstrations, issued dire warnings against the protesters, promised a massive showing of force if the ban was defied. BBS tells us, BBC. Everyone's mind was on the peaceful January demonstration in Lithuania that was crushed by Soviet tanks and troops, killing a wide range of people. On the day of the march, 50,000 troops and police crowded Moscow. But 100,000 people ignored the ban and marched. Fortunately, there were no clashes. But commenting on shortwave radio, a BBC correspondent described Gorbachev, the leader of the Soviet Union, described him as showing a force as a display of strength that showed considerable weakness. A display of strength that showed considerable weakness. Haman is putting on a display of strength that shows considerable weakness. And it could be that you've been confronted by something that is so oppositional to God's will, makes 
makes your stomach turn. It's a display of strength that shows in considerable weakness. You need the sovereign God who's almighty to be involved in the chess piece moves of your life. Three days later, he did raise Jesus from the dead when the cross appeared in the eyes of the public as a display of weakness. It was the sign of strength. This idea pleased Haman. He had the gallows made. People are still wondering, where are you, God? What are you doing, God? Where does this take us, God? And perhaps Corey Tenboom could have wondered the same thing when she was incarcerated because of what she had done for the Jews as one who knew Jesus as her Lord and Savior. When in her incarceration, prisoner of war camp, Corey Tenboom received a letter one day in prison entitled, To the Watchmaker. All the watches in your cabinet are safe. Quote, unquote. Which meant the refugees that she had housed in her home had managed to escape and were safe. And the watchmaker knew that her sovereign God was watching over her as he is you for his glory and your good. Let's stand together. And the cross looked like a display of weakness. But there is power in that cross where the sinless one died for the sinful ones. And three days later, the power of the resurrection. Jesus is raised from the dead. And when we ponder generation by generation how you have preserved the Jews, what you are doing is preserving your sovereign plan for first and second comings, weaving together a strategy to populate heaven for your glory. So we thank you now, Father, for who you are. Thank you, Father, for what you've done. For anybody this morning who comes in wrestling with strength and weakness issues, minister to them at their point of need and draw them to you. In Jesus' name.